the church is fractured. Um, we've seen that over the past couple of years. We've experienced a lot of division among Christians at the levels of networks and denominations, but also inside local churches and among friends, too. So is all this division a good thing? Is it only a bad thing? Will division work for the church's greater purity and final good, or will division work to the church's final detriment and the lessening of her testimony in the world today? It's a relevant question. It's an important one. And it comes to us from a listener named Connor. Hello, Pastor John, and thank you for this encouraging podcast. I have heard a lot from fellow Christians recently about the sadness of the church being so divided with all its disagreements splitting local churches and denominations and even old friends. Division is everywhere. While there's much to be sad about in much of this, especially given Jesus' emphasis on his desire that his disciples be unified in love, I have been wondering whether some of the divisions in the church today are good, even necessary, as a means to distinguish the sheep from the wolves, something Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 11.19. But can we distinguish healthy from unhealthy divisions in the church? Some big-issue divisions seem obvious and good, uh, but other divisions seem petty and insignificant. What do you think of the disagreements in the church today? Well, there's so many ways to come at this. Let me come at it like this. The point that I would like to emphasize about the divisions in the church is this. Don't make light of it and don't make death of it. It is tragic, but it is ordained. It is possible to speak about disunity and division as though they were a small thing, which would be a mistake. Making light of it is a mistake. Just listen. John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's a mm. very convicting text. Yeah. Lovelessness among Christians is not a light thing. John 17, 21, Jesus prays, I pray, Father, that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Ephesians 4, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. One more, 1 Corinthians 1.10. I appeal to you, brothers. By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. So, just, just a few texts, there's so many more. We simply must not make light of our divisions, especially those that are unnecessary for the sake of truth, or that are maintained with unloving attitudes and actions. Three things stand out from those passages of Scripture. One is 
that the deepest unity among God's elect is a given. It's a given. We don't create unity. Man doesn't make it happen. When, when we come to Christ, we are grafted in by the Spirit to one body, Jesus Christ, and members one of another, so that the command in Ephesians 4 is maintain the unity. Don't create it. Show it to the world. A second thing that stands out from those passages I just read is that the public effectiveness of our unity is not at the level of institutional oneness or collaboration, as though the absence of denominations would be a compelling witness to the world. Rather, the public effectiveness of our unity is when unbelievers see on-the-ground attitudes and acts of love among believers. This is where the energy for unity should be mainly expended, I think. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That's the level at which the miracle happens. That's the level at which the unbeliever sees and says, I'd like to be part of that kind of community. The third thing that all these texts either say or assume is that the only kind of unity that glorifies God is unity in the truth. He's a God of truth. You shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Paul says in Ephesians 4.15, speak the truth in love to one another. For Christ and his apostles, it was inconceivable that one could love another, another person, by throwing away truth for the sake of peace. Listen to Jeremiah. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. The only peace that matters is truth-based peace. So when I pray for unity in the church, which I do regularly, little, little church, big church, I pray, oh God, grant us unity in the truth. So Francis Schaeffer, at the end of his life, said that what the world needs to see is not the Christian church tearing down every fence that was built for the sake of truth, protecting truth, declaring truth. Rather, what we should do is stop throwing hate bombs over the fences. So mm. I thought that was a very effective yeah. way. And, and instead, love each other across genuine disagreements, genuine fences. The world, I don't think, stumbles mainly over doctrinal disagreements among Christians. It stumbles mainly over the way we treat each other in the light of those disagreements. So, all of that to say that we should not make light of the contentions and divisions in the church. But now let me say, we should not make death of these divisions either. 
Don't make light of them. Don't make death of them. That is, we should not have an unbiblical Pollyanna view of what Jesus and his apostles said would actually come to pass as time goes by in the church. It's not a rosy picture. Now, to be sure, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come, Matthew 24, 14. There will be a completion of the Great Commission, and God will gather his elect from the peoples of the world. That is the triumph of this age before Christ comes. But the conditions of the church and of the world in which the church finds itself while that mission is happening successfully is not a pretty picture. One of the texts that Connor mentioned when he asked his question is 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen. I hear that there are divisions among you, Paul said, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Now, that is a startling statement. Mm. It assumes that there is underlying disunity in the church that needs to be exposed. He, he just seems to assume it. Why would Paul assume such a thing? Now, I think that assumption goes back to Jesus. Jesus did not paint a rosy picture of the climax of history. In God's strange providence, Jesus stated a principle like this, Woe to the world! for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation, the stumbling, the traps, the deceptions come, Matthew 18, 7. That's amazing. Yeah. This is divine necessity. When he says it is necessary, he's talking about the way God has ordained for the world to come to its climax. God has willed these kinds of troubles. Jesus pictured this kind of inevitable trouble in the parables of the fishing net and the parable of the wheat and the weeds, Matthew 13, 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net. So the kingdom of heaven, the rule of God, the, the saving rule of God is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. And when it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good, good, into containers, but they threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come out and separate evil from the righteous. So the kingdom, the visible church, draws into itself unconverted people that the angels will separate out in the day of Christ's second coming. Same thing in the parable of the wheat and the weeds. The workers, they wonder if they should go out and pull up the weeds that are growing among the wheat. False brothers. And Jesus says, no, let them grow together until the end, Matthew 13, 30. In other words, Jesus predicted that disunity and conflict would be built into the church from the beginning. It is necessary, it is necessary that such temptations come. These weeds 
are not going to keep their mouths shut. They're not going to keep their opinions and attitudes to themselves as time goes by. And then, in Matthew 24, when the disciples ask Jesus about the signs of the end, Jesus says over and over in that chapter how torn the church is going to be with betrayals and apostasy. Let's listen to these words. I'll start reading at verse 4 of Matthew 24. Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name. These are people in the church, in the name of Jesus. People will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. They will lead many astray. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. These are Christians, putting Christians to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another. This is not just trouble from outside the church. Betray one another. Hate one another. That's verse 10. Here's verse 11. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. So we're talking about Christians' love growing cold and not enduring to the end. Now, that's a horrible description of the condition of the church. This is what the church will do to each other. Incredible. And the Apostle Paul joins this bleak description of the condition of the church in the last days and remember, the last days began in the first century. 1 Timothy 4.1 Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits. So it's part of prophetic wisdom in the first century that things are not going to end well on the earth. It's going to be bleak. The mission will be done. There will be white-hot Christians to the end, risking their lives and laying down their lives to get the gospel to the ends. So I conclude, don't make light of divisions and don't make death, that is, the death of the church, of divisions. They are tragic. We should give our lives for the sake of the unity of the church. They are tragic and they are predicted. It is necessary that stumbling blocks come, but woe to those by whom they come. Don't make light of them, and don't make death of them. That's a good word on divisions. Thank you, Pastor John. And Connor, thank you for the great and timely question. Nicely worded and framed for the podcast, too. And thanks for joining us today. You can ask a question of your own, search our growing archive, or subscribe to the podcast, all at desiringgod.org forward slash John. I'm your host, Tony Ranke. We are going to take a short break for the weekend and return on Monday with Pastor John. We'll see you then.